Good morning again, everyone. It's lovely to be here, and it's a privilege to be standing here this morning. Um, shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we just honor you this morning. We give you thanks and praise. We thank you for all that you are and all that you're doing in our midst. We thank you for what you're doing in our lives. We thank you, O oh God, that there is nothing indeed new under the sun and that nothing alarms or phases you. We thank you, O oh God, that you're working out your perfect purpose and will through the many seasons of our lives, despite how things may appear to our natural eye, O oh God. We thank you, my God, that even though you are all-powerful, all-knowing, that you are everywhere at the same time, you have chosen to co-labor with us, have us co-labor with you, my God, to bring about your purposes. We thank you for that honor. And Father, as we have gathered this morning to fellowship together, to worship you and to hear your voice, I pray that that, that, you would, us, that the seed of your word would go deep into our hearts, that you would water it by your spirit and it would bring forth a mighty harvest. Let your word and your word alone be heard and established in the hearts of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So, this is the sixth installment of our uh, series on kingdom culture. I hope that we've all been uh, adjusting our lives accordingly. Have we? It's been a very powerful series, and I believe that it is a word for us in this season. The Lord is adjusting us for his purposes. It's not just, uh, let me just remind you of this. He's redefining us and the way that we operate. So this is the sixth installment, and we've talked about three of our values as a house to date. The first one being, we are not from here. We are spirits with a soul that is housed in a body so that we can operate with authority in two realms. But our reborn spirit is one with Christ, our Savior, and, and it is the spirit realm and, and the spirit that is, should be normal to us, and we live from there. Number two. See, look at these ones. I won't even hear. They want to show us that. That notwithstanding. <laughs> Without his presence, we are nothing. The restored relationship with our Heavenly Father is living and vital. And we cannot understand what is required of us per time if we do not seek out and live and abide in his presence. We cannot discover our true selves. We cannot take territory and occupy it if we do not appropriately host and steward his presence in our lives. Number three. It was just last week. <laughs> Meditation is the key to transformation into his image in every aspect of life. If we are to come into the fullness of what he intends for us in Christ Jesus, we must not only feed on the word, but we must break it down and digest it. We must allow the truth therein to become part of our being and the consciousness by which we live. So today we're moving to number four. Number four is we are here to shift culture, not to produce good events and experiences. So this is the first value that relates to how we project outward, actually. One to three have been talking about our own fellowship and relationship with God and one another. But this is the first of our values that we're going through that talks about our outward projection. So how do we know that we have an outward-looking mandate? Is it just, you know, we're just trying to mix things up a bit, or is there a legitimate outward mandate that we can define from the word? 
Well, I'm going to read Isaiah 61, 1 to 4, in the New King James. And this is, as some call it, Jesus' mission statement. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me to preach good tidings to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, that they may be called trees of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that he may be glorified. And they shall rebuild the old ruins. They shall raise up former desolations, and they shall repair the ruined cities, the desolations of many generations. And verse 4 in the Message Bible says, they'll rebuild the old ruins, raise a new city out of the wreckage. They'll start over on the ruined cities, take the rubble left behind and make it new. Perhaps we may still need more convincing, so I shall go on. Matthew 5, 13 in the message, translation says, let me tell you why you are here. You're here to be salt, seasoning that brings out the God flavors of this earth. If you lose your saltiness, how will people taste godliness? You've lost your usefulness and will end up in the garbage. Salt is experienced in context, right? I mean, I can have a kilo of salt here, but nobody experiences it unless and until it's mixed with something else, an environment other than itself. Wherever we mix salt must need enhancement or preservation. There is something that it lacks that only the salt can bring out. So if we're not added to anything, if we're not living in the context of anything, then how will anything be seasoned? How will our saltiness be even felt? Having salt in isolation in a jar is of no consequence to anyone, even to the salt. And if we are added, and we do not preserve, and we do not enhance, then we have lost our saltiness. We have no reason for being. The Bible says that we will be thrown out into the street and trampled underfoot. We can take that literally in the sense of, well, I'm saying this for those of us that grew up, you see what he didn't mention, he mentioned the Kenneb bit. There's another location <laughs> across the ocean where they have winter. And in the winter when it snows and, um, you know, the local government, because it works there, they, they want to make sure that we don't fall over. They kind of clear the pathways and they put salt down so that there's some grip and we don't trip. So in a literal sense, yes, salt can be thrown uh, down on the road to be trampled. And arguably it's serving some purpose. But if we take it also figuratively, if we are salt, we, our lives, are salt and we are not salty, being trampled underfoot by men also speaks to me of... Um, you know, being out of sync with purpose, being of no use, and therefore being liable for abuse, to just be uh, surplus to requirement and to be abused, really, by the system, as it were. 
Matthew 5, 14 to 16 in the, in, the, in the Passion Translation says, Your lives light up the world. Let others see your light from a distance. For how can, they, how can you hide a city that stands on a hilltop? And who would light a lamp and then hide it in an obscure place? Instead, it is placed where everyone in the house can benefit from its light. So don't hide your light. Let it shine brightly before others. So that commendable things you do will shine as light upon them. And then they will give praise to your Father in heaven. So again, light projects outwards. The beneficiaries of light is not the light bulb. It is those that are around light, that would otherwise be stumbling in darkness, that otherwise would not see the way to go, that otherwise would not know, that would be living in uh, a state of chaos or without direction. So if Jesus says we are salt and light, then among the many things that he has called us, he's also telling us that our very existence is to be of benefit to those that are around us. And Jesus said this in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, where, you know, this is the first time he's talking to Israel about living from the inside out. You know, the Israelites had gone for generations and generations. They'd been taught to practice certain things. And largely, those things were to keep them in check notwithstanding their sinful nature. God had created a system that enabled them to do things outwardly that addressed their inward failings. But the Sermon on the Mount, the focus switches to your inner state. And he talks, Jesus talks about your inner state producing something. For those of us that are still not sure if we're mandated to get involved, I have more. Ephesians chapter 1 20 to 23 in the Message Bible, one of my favorite scriptures. All this energy issues from Christ. God raised him from death and set him on a throne in deep heaven, in charge of running the universe, everything from galaxies to governments, no name and no power exempt from his rule. And not just for the time being, but forever. He's in charge of it all, has the final word on everything, at the center of all this, Christ rules the church. The church, you see, is not peripheral to the world. The world is peripheral to the church. The church is Christ's body in which he speaks and acts, by which he fills everything with his presence. The world is peripheral to the church. If we just take this church and just think about the context in which we gather, is peripheral to us. So the health, actually, of that periphery speaks of the effectiveness, the potency of the core. We're coming back to this point, but I just wanted to draw that out further. That we are not disconnected from our environment. It's very clear here that actually, I mean, if we're in the body of Christ and Christ is in charge of everything, then... We are his agents on the earth to express that government and that lordship. So if you're in his body, he's talking to you and talking to me. Isaiah 60, 1 to 3, in the expanded Bible says, Jerusalem, get up, arise, and shine, because your light has come, and the glory of the Lord shines on you. Look, behold, darkness now covers or will cover the earth. 
Deep darkness covers her people, the nations. But the Lord shines on you and people see his glory, his manifest presence around and upon you. Nations will come to your light. Kings will come to the brightness of your sunrise or your radiance. So again, the Lord is talking about, and this word actually has come to us as a house many a time in different forms. I don't know if how many of us remember when the apostle, prophet, Tomi Arayomi came. <laughs> he said we should just call him Tomi, right? Tomi Arayomi. When he came, there's a word that he gave the church along this very vein about us being uh, a new construct, not church as has traditionally been done. And I'm sure that that word doesn't only apply to this local community. It just speaks of what God is doing on the earth. You know, when we receive prophecy, we know that what God is doing in the midst of us, he will do it elsewhere too. But he's just telling us that it's not about the gathering alone, that we are being raised up to be as government in this environment, to express his government, to, to demonstrate his kingdom uh, in this time. And we know that 1 John 2.17 says that the world is passing away and with it its lusts, the shameful pursuits and ungodly longings. But the one who does the will of God and carries out his purposes lives forever. So there is a will and there are his purposes. And we are mandated, that is our mission, to execute them. Despite the decline of the world systems, there is still a purpose to fulfill. There is still something that God requires of us. We cannot actually cross our legs and be in that place of, well, any minute now, Jesus is coming soon, and therefore, let me just stay saved so I can make heaven. My housekeeper says this to me. She says, Am I want to make heaven. Which is a noble desire, and I commend the fact that she wants to make heaven. But the truth is that if that was our only mission, we could just receive Christ and sleep in the Lord, and we'd be done. But the fact that we remain here, there are some times when I'm just tired or not, you know, rah, 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 because I'm not always rah, 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 funny enough. Um, but then I remind myself that the very fact that I have woken up that morning, the fact that I have breath in my lungs means that God has purpose for me on this side of eternity. And I must lock into that and expend my energy on fulfilling that. And the same applies to all of us. And just to wrap up on mandate, Acts 17, 26 says, and he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their lands and territories. And what that basically means in plain English is that God planted you here. We've said, yes, we're rebuilding the cities. There are many cities that need rebuilding. Some of you may say, ah, but Paris is struggling now. <laughs> Houston, they are having problems. But... It says here, <laughs> he's appointed the times and the boundaries of their lands and territories. I'm afraid you're called to Lagos. <laughs> you're called to Nigeria, and he's given you everything that you need to represent him. Even those of us that were born elsewhere, he's called us here. So don't despair. It's not an accident. We're here for a purpose. Okay. We know for a fact, oh, sorry, 1 John 5, 19, Amplified. We know for a fact that we are of God and that the whole world around us lies in the power of the evil one opposing God and his precepts. We can see it everywhere. 
We know that we are God's children and that the whole world lies under, this is passion. We know that, the, that we are God's children and that the whole world lies under the misery and influence of the evil one. Can we see the desolation in our city? We don't have to look very far. But yet he has said in Isaiah 9, 6, to 7, 6 and 7, in the message, For a child has been born for us, the gift of a son for us. He'll take over the running of the world. Has the child been born or not? The child has been born. His ruling authority will grow. This is 7b. His ruling authority will grow and there'll be no limits to the wholeness he brings. In the Amplified it says, There shall be no end to the increase of his government and of peace. He shall rule on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from that time forward and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. So despite the way things appear to our natural eye, there's a declaration that the Lord has made concerning the arrival of the Messiah and the increase of his government perpetually. So the question is, you know, I was... um, I was in uh, California. They need help too, but the Lord has called me here. I had to come back. <laughs> um, and the minister there was talking about that word being like a river that is flowing, relentlessly flowing. And if you stand outside of the river, it can seem as though the government of God is not increasing as if that word is not being fulfilled. But when you align with that which he has spoken, and we tune our hearts and our spirits to that which he has said, and we allow him to open uh, that which is happening in the unseen that may not be apparent to us on a sensory level, then we realize, actually, that God is still on his throne, that his government is not diminishing, actually, despite how things may look with our natural eye. So our expectation and our attitude and our pursuit must continually be the advancement of the expression of his kingdom because he has told us that his government will increase and continue to increase. So we must seek it out. It must be our mission, our objective. He is the head and we are the body and together we are called to govern. Govern our neighborhoods, our communities, our cities. So what does all this have to do with culture? We are here to shift culture, not to create good events or experiences. So what that means is that if we accept the mandate that I've outlined, and we believe that the Lord has planted us here in this community, this kingdom community, then what we're saying is that High Life Church, and by extension, I, you, can put your name there, we are here in Nigeria at this time to change or exchange the prevailing culture with another or others, and not to produce satisfactory or high-quality occurrences or encounters. Now, culture is a well-used word here. You know, we, we say it a lot. We say, ah, it's not our culture. That's not in our culture. This is our culture. So we're almost, I mean, in a way that we don't use that word in the UK. So we're very conscious on some level of, of culture. So what is it and why does it need shifting? Well, I think, first of all, especially in this context, we need to look beyond the ceremonial. Because actually, culture for us, in many ways, we think of ceremonial things. We think of, you know... I was going to speak to you about there, sorry. <laughs> it's those people in Abelkuta. 
it's what they've done to me. Um, <laughs> so, so we think, okay, want to go and uh, marry a wife. You can see why I was going to speak Yoruba there. Um, we have to take yams, we have to take fabric, we have to take, you know, I know in some parts, kola nut is a big part of it. You know, that for us is culture. Or we want to name a child and there's a way that we do it. Or somebody died, somebody old died and there's a way culturally that we, will, we must bury them if we're to honor them. And all of that is true and it is culture. But it's much, 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 much more than that. And there are many things that we do not articulate in the context of what we think to be our culture that actually is our culture and is informing the way that we live. The dictionary defines culture as the behaviors and beliefs characteristic of a particular social, ethnic, or age group. Now, I want you to indulge me for a moment here, for a few moments, because I'm going to read out some descriptions of culture but as I do so, I want you to think about um, this environment and what those things... I'm, I'm sure words and pictures will pop into your head. So I want you to close your eyes and just listen to the words that I'm saying and allow your mind to consider what these things mean in the context of our society. Are your eyes closed? I can see eyes looking back at me. Culture is consistent, observable patterns of behavior in communities or societies. So just think about scenarios. Think about your workplace, driving to your workplace. Think about the consistent, observable patterns that you experience when you're doing that. Those things are part of our culture, at least in this city. Culture is powerfully shaped by reward or expected outcome. The best predictor of what people will do is what they are incentivized to do. Think about your encounters on a day-to-day -day basis, whether it be in a commercial establishment, whether it be in a place of government. Think about your interactions and think about your perception of reward and incentive based on those encounters. Those things that are coming to your mind are our culture, our present culture. Culture defines a jointly shared description of a community or society from within. This moves the definition of culture beyond patterns of behavior into the realm of jointly held beliefs and interpretations of what is. Because there are things that we do, yes, but there are also things that we believe. Culture is a carrier of meaning. Cultures provide not only a shared view of what is, but also why it is. Culture is a social control system. The role of culture in promoting and reinforcing right thinking and behaving and sanctioning wrong thinking and behaving. Think about some of our social norms. Think about how we relate to people who we feel do not fit into them. If you're not married by the time you're 30, gosh, I mean, that's even modern for women, 25. We change. You know, people start having meetings about you. They've stopped having meetings about me. They've, like, moved on now. But you know what I mean? There's a way that we... Uh, there are things that we consider to be right and things that we consider to be wrong. We transmit them. 
Culture is co the community or society's immune system. It's a form of protection that has evolved from situational pressures. So think about, people say, oh, you know, when we were growing up, Nigeria was not like this. So our culture is not the sentimental culture of our grandparents because situational pressures has birthed different beliefs and different patterns of behavior among us, which we may not articulate as our culture if somebody asked us, but they're there. I see you've all grown tired. Your eyes are open. Sister Becky, thank you for persevering and keeping your eyes closed. I hope that you guys are still imagining things with your eyes wide open. <laughs> and lastly, it oversimplifies the situation in large societies or countries to assume that there is only one culture. And it is risky to ignore subcultures. Think about the emergence of Boko Haram, for example. That's like an obvious example. But then there are others. Area boys. You know, there are subcultures. As far as some of those subsets are concerned, you know, what we consider to be the prevailing culture doesn't even relate to them. A country's history and how it came together also figures importantly in defining its culture and subcultures. And you know, for Nigeria, I think that's especially important. You know, when people talk about, if you Google us, if you whatever, they'll say there, nobody really seems to know. 250, 300 ethnic groups, languages, whatever. But the bottom line is that there are lots of cut and paste that has gone on to bring us together in this nation that we call Nigeria. So inevitably, there are a lot of subcultures. So some of the descriptions of behavior and belief that are apparent in our communities and cities, since you all did your exercise so obediently, can some of you just shout out some of the things that, you, that came to your mind as our beliefs or, 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 or behaviors whilst you were closing your eyes? Anyone? Dangerous driving. <laughs> Dangerous driving. Any more? Is that the only one? Corruption. Corruption. Any more? Tribalism. Thank you. Any more? As in no respect. Oh, really? Do we respect? Okay. Maybe your eyes were open. <laughs> Eye service. Interesting. Anyone else? Have chaos. So, I mean, exactly. And actually, those things... If culture talks about behavior and beliefs, the things that we're describing are part of our culture. Nobody will make a documentary about it. Well, actually, maybe the BBC would. <laughs> but do you know what I mean? You know, if we want to celebrate ourselves, that's not what we're going to put there. But those things are our culture. I've put some down here myself. I put scarcity, beliefs and behaviors. There's a belief of scarcity, which produces anxiety, Aggression, dishonesty, scarcity of transport, scarcity of jobs, healthcare, money. So we believe that and it, it informs our outlook. Another one I have here is anonymity. And I'm thinking really about the city of Lagos in that regard. Because I guess when we go to our Ikene, I'm not anonymous there, I'll have you know. They'll refer to me two and three generations like helped by my grandmother's famous rice. I digress. I had to get that in. <laughs> so, 
anonymity in the city. I'm just here to hustle. Nobody knows me. Nobody cares, least of all government. Impunity is a belief. Impunity is normal. There is no law and no justice. Normal laws do not apply here. We've even made t-shirts to that effect. What do we say? This is Niger. And in that statement, it's all there. We all understand ourselves. If you know, you know. <laughs> Money is the principal thing. You know the Bible says, in all you're getting, get understanding. In all you're getting, get, mo get money. I almost sang a song there. Gosh, I'll be fired. <laughs> money is the principal thing. In the context of lack, it answers all things. So there's this passionate, fervent pursuit of money. Materialism. Without the right possessions, there is no respect, no value, no esteem. Morals and manners are outdated. You know, when I was younger, we used to always have this thing that, ah, you know, when you go to Nigeria, you have to be on your P's and Q's, ah, because you just, in fact, one false move, you can just offend somebody. They will say, I'm sorry, I have to speak Yoruba now. I'm a London These London children have come, they don't know anything. Don't they teach you how to kneel down? We were so obsessed with falling short in terms of morals and manners when I was a kid. But I look around me now, I'm like, ah, so why were they beating us now? <laughs> what was the point? <laughs> Actually, no, I'm glad they did. I'm glad they did. And the final one I have here, and this is not exhaustive, but this was just some of the ones that I thought about, but I particularly, this one made me chuckle. Packaging is key. <laughs> Packaging. I don't mean the box that your perfume comes in. I mean packaging. Form over substance is what I mean. How something appears is more important than how it actually is. So all of those things that I just, a few, I mean, can we all identify with them? All of those things are in our culture. It's got nothing to do with taking kola nods to somebody's father. These are an integral part of the prevailing beliefs and behaviors in our context. So what is it producing in the lives of the people? Shallowness, hopelessness, bondage, addiction, immorality, avarice, anxiety, a lack of compassion, impunity, dishonesty, fear, apathy. Again, not an exhaustive list, but we can all identify with all of those things that we see around us every day, sometimes closer than we would like them to be. So who is ruling this system? We know. 2 Corinthians 4.4 says, Among them, the God of this world, Satan, has blinded the minds of the unbelieving to prevent them from seeing the illuminating light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 1 John 2.17 says, The world is passing away, and with it its lusts, the shameful pursuits and ungodly longings. But the one who does the will of God and carries out his purposes lives forever. The kingdom of God is righteousness, peace, and joy. But yet our culture, the prevailing culture in the environment in which we live, in which we fellowship, in which we have church, is all those things I described earlier. Now, I'm not saying that's the only thing that's happening there, because... God never leaves himself without a witness. He is merciful. And after all, we are here. But the point is that we can all identify those things as prevailing in our environment. So why does culture matter? 
Well, when I was preparing um, for today, the Holy Spirit led me to my bookshelf. And I don't know how many of you are familiar with Francis Schaeffer. He is a Christian, he was a Christian theologian and philosopher. And he wrote a book called How Should We Then Live? And it was published in 1976. And amazingly, when I was reading it, it could have been published last week. So the first, I'll just read a few things from it and draw a few things from it. He says, there is a flow to history and culture. The flow is rooted and has its wellspring in the thoughts of the people. What they are in thought, in their thought world, determines how they act, their value systems, their creativity. This is true of their corporate actions, such as political choices, and it is true of their personal lives. So just think about all those things that we just discussed and described. You can imagine the thought life. Presuppositions, the basic way an individual looks at life, their basic worldview. They rest on what a person considers to be the truth of what exists. So if we believe all those things that we outlined earlier, I mean, our worldview will be shaped in response to that. And we form our values based on our presuppositions or our basic worldview. So thoughts produce our worldview. Our worldview produces our values. Our values produce culture. And culture produces actions and basically writes history. So the culture that we have that is prevailing in our city cannot, cannot produce that which is pleasing to God. It's not possible. The fruits of the Spirit, we all know them. And I didn't mention any of them as prevailing. Another thing he said is, it's important to realize what a difference a people's worldview makes in their strength as they're exposed to the pressures of life. So, you know, I talked before about when we were kids and the way that... Um, you know, what seemed to be the Nigerian worldview then. But pressures have come in. Decades of poor leadership, poor management, economic hardship, pressures. And it's produced what we described earlier. So evidently, the foundations were not as robust as we would have liked to think. They've not been able to withstand the evolution of our society and our context. Many of us, our worldview, our presuppositions, our values, we catch them like the cold. You know, we're just around, whether it be in our families, our social, whatever it is, our schools, our society in general. Very few of us, obviously not the people in this room, but actually choose our worldview, choose our presuppositions, decide that this is actually what I believe to be true and this is what I'm going to build my values from. Most of the time it is incidental. But for something so profoundly important, actually it should be considered. We should think about it. We should examine it and determine that these are my presuppositions and these are my values. It introduces these ideas in the context of the Roman Empire. And interestingly, the, the, the Roman civilization is the, if you like, the father of the current Western civilization, which we as a, as a country overall aspire to. We almost like want to have that plus, you know, our kariyams and kulanots. We just add that, you know what I mean? But we want, we want that 
we go for summer to get a dosage of that. Um, and we know we'll mix our own flavor, just like you garnish a dish with something. But actually, in our heart of hearts, many of us aspire to what that Western civilization looks like. You know, there's some things we say, mm, we don't like that bit, that bit, and we would add our own. But we look at them as, ah, I'm sorry, I have to speak Yoruba again. I will translate. My mom will say, ah, which basically means the white man, we are just looking at them, we cannot meet them, as in we can't catch up. But yet, that Oimbo civilization that we're talking about is the child of the Roman civilization. Who's been to Italy here? Show of hands. Uh, why are you people shy now? If you've been to Italy, own it, own it. Me, I've been. <laughs> Have you been? So I went to Rome and I went to the ruins of the Colosseum and I was just like, ah. but these people used to rule the world. I mean, Rome, Julius Caesar, like, and then you see the ruins. In fact, even apart from the ruins, you even just see Rome generally. You think, ah. I mean, this is clearly not a glory to glory matter. <laughs> <laughs> because if you were continuing onwards and upwards from then, uh-uh. So what happened? I mean, what happened? They used to rule the world. What happened? But the foundations of the Roman civilization were weak. They were really on, like the Greeks, they, they're gods with a small g. And those gods were what? Human beings that they just decided to elevate to God's status because they needed something. So your gods got drunk, your gods were unbridled in their passions, your gods had no self-control. And in fact, um, Hercules was a god, right? But when earthquake came, and Pompeii, and I've forgotten the name of the city, Hercules something, was the city that he was the god of. <laughs> the city was destroyed with the earthquake. So evidently, with that, the God is now, has no kingdom. So I mean, clearly, if you, if you build on that type of foundation, a whole civilization, it, is, it can't answer the deep questions of life. It's not possible. So in the end, I guess when they ran out of track, ran out of ideas, you know, there was, they, couldn't, they couldn't keep everybody in check. So they opted for authoritarianism. Let's just tell Julius Caesar that he can do and undo. And let's hope that if he's ever more heavy-handed, he will at least keep order and we can live. But of course he could not. So when, I guess, hope was lost, they gave in to... Because you can imagine, if authoritarianism and heavy-handedness is the way that you're going to maintain your kingdom... I mean, you have to keep until the people are completely oppressed. So cruelty, violence, sexual indulgence, just unbridledness is really what was the nth degree of the Roman civilization. And then, of course, eventually they were invaded, but they had already caved in from the inside before that happened. And as far back as 1976... Schaefer talks about the threats on the horizon, such as economic breakdown, the chaos of violence, terrorism, 
inequality in the redistribution of wealth, shortage of resources. These things we now refer to as a VUCA environment. Volatility, uncertainty, complexity, and ambiguity is how we describe the world that we live in. It's a buzzword. You know, if boardroom presentations, we're coping with a VUCA environment. But he was describing these things in 1976. And he talked about impoverished, low-grade values that are born out of an environment where there's stress and hardship and people are just trying to survive. And he describes low-grade values as personal peace and prosperity. Now think about that. Think about that in the context of our environment. Personal peace and prosperity. You know, we abuse many public figures, but if you engage many of us, I mean, that's really where we're at. We just want enough to be able to have personal peace and prosperity. Let me send my children to the school I want them to go to. Let me be able to at least go for someone once a year. Let me be able to change my car when it needs change. Let me just, let me just you know. You know, what, when I moved to Nigeria, um, which is 10 years ago now, um, I remember one of my clients uh, asking me what was the biggest um, adjustment or surprise to me. And I said, I, I guess they thought I would be talking about infrastructure, blah, roads. I mean, you know, that was quite shocking, I must admit. But... But the biggest difficulty I had, the biggest, was with my peers. And this very thing, this personal peace and prosperity being all that we seem to care about. So, you know, when you're living overseas, if you imagine a Nigerian child born and raised in London, I understand what it means for people to think nothing of my country. Because it, it's projected on how they think of me. And I experience that every day. But if you live here, maybe you don't notice so much. So when I came here, to me it was a big deal. Like we have to, I mean, there's just so much that needs to be done. Nigeria will always need me more than England would. I, I need to come. My peers were significantly less concerned. Significantly. You know, they were happy to spend $1,000 buying weave. At one fifty to one, so it's more now. You know, I, I was shocked at the prevalence of Chanel bags. I mean, I thought, okay, what is the UK's GDP per capita? But my friends, we didn't carry these bags. We didn't care. But that per we have to demonstrate our prosperity. And I just want my own little corner of the world to work. As for what is happening generally, I'm less concerned. <laughs> no, I mean, it's actually not that funny. I remember, you know, from a distance, we see people and say, ah, no. Sorry, you're by again. I'll translate. Any ancient that gone? Ah, Oshie Loramoto mean it. Tobarimoto yeah. That guy is doing very well, though. He has just bought a new car. But the reality is, when you scratch the surface, because you see, those of us that have have more perspective, you you do the math, and it doesn't add up. You look at the economy, and you think, how can the banking sector really be prospering to that extent? It doesn't add up. And actually, it doesn't add up. Because when you scrutinize it further, you see some of the things that are going on. So there's this one cake. I've just found a different way to slice it. And I'm running off into the night before anybody catches me or apprehends me. I haven't grown anything. I haven't produced anything. There's no greater productivity. Nothing has happened. But, you know, personal peace and prosperity. Impoverished values. So I guess all of this sounds familiar. 
And we settle for inferior forms of government in the context of the environment that I described. I don't know if, how many of you remember Tomi Arayomi's prophecy about Nigeria when he talked about the enemy wanting to create an environment that um, made it appealing for the military to come back. He talked about Sharia and extremities and people kind of thinking, well, but yeah, you know, maybe because clearly freedom, we're not getting it right. So maybe if we just do the authoritarian way, maybe it may work. I don't know how many conversations I've been in where, you know, I hear people that really should know better saying, ah, I beg the military soldiers should just take over because it was better. At least when uh, Babangida was there, we could. These things are not new. It's the same thing that happened in Rome. When everything seemed to be getting out of control, they opted for more and more authoritarian rather than address the foundations of the issue. Another inferior form of government that we settle for in this environment is ton by ton. We just say, ah, we are zoning. We rotate. Competence is of no relevance. No, 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 it's the ton of so, so, and so. So just bring somebody. Is that not how... Okay, I'll refrain from saying that because we are recording. I was going to say something. But let's just say, if you look at some of the recent crop of elected people, those of you that are on social media will know the subtext of what I'm saying. You'll be wondering, how did this person become... It's tone by tone. The final point, it's not the final point, but the final point I want to make from Francis Schaeffer's writings is that he makes it clear that, you know, the Western civilization or the Western prosperity and the freedom that we aspire to and we look at America as the land of the free or whatever, the reason why it worked when they founded it was because it was founded on Christ and the values of the kingdom. And the challenge comes when you grant freedoms without that foundation, then we have what we have. And then for countries that never really had that foundation, it's worse still. Because we're still, I don't know what to call us. Is it barbarians? I don't know what to call us. But the things that are really under the packaging are not even expired Christian foundation. Maybe in some place you can still find the flames. I say, are people remember now? Remember how we used to do this thing? But for many of us, we have no real reference point in our communities. We were never built on those foundations. And then we've now added freedom. So we have what we have. So the options are, we go the route of being heavily authoritarian. We bring the soldiers back or soldiers in civilians' clothing, however we want to look at it. Or the foundations need to be Christ. Otherwise, our societies, our communities will just not work. So back to the foundations. The battle that we're in is active and strategic. Ephesians 6.12, in case you thought I was done with the Bible. Let's get back there. Ephesians 6.12 says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Now, we'll recall that when we speak about demonic powers, we speak about them in light of their function. So we'll say a spirit of infirmity or a, a dumb spirit because that is the impact that it has on the life 
of whoever is hosting it. Actually, in that same vein, when this verse talks about principalities and powers, I mean, I, I don't really know what we think of. Maybe we think of some cluster of wicked demons that get together and plot and plan. Um, but actually, it's a demon that attacks the foundation of things. I won't bore you with the, all of the, the Greek words. You can look that up by yourselves. But if you look at the meaning of that word principality, it speaks about the function of that spirit is to attack the foundations. So, and we're seeing it happening across the globe now. I mean, doesn't it seem weird that we're obsessed with gender currently? I mean, it's like boy, girl, girl, boy, gender neutral, androgynous, you know, um, because those fundamentals of identity are being attacked vigorously. It's not by accident that those things are topical. You know, we had that experience with the homosexual movement, which is mature now. And you see, notice those things are, because we kind of used to think, eh, those are, those are the things we don't like about the West. Have they not come to meet us? If you can, you should watch a film called Milk. I know that Pastor says he doesn't like recommending films, but I'm not Pastor, so <laughs> I can recommend. But the film is called Milk, and it's about a man called Harvey Milk, who is dead, but it's a lesson in how people organize themselves to take political power. When you watch that movie, you'll understand why the gay movement has become what it has become. Because we started off in a context of and this was again in the 70s, basically, they were being beaten up and, and treated very badly by the police and so on. And so there was a, an uprising against it. Now, nobody obviously would have any moral uh, authority to say that that is how someone who was homosexual should be treated. But it pushed them to a place where they organized themselves as far back as the 70s. And we can see how entrenched, how entrenched um, acceptance of the gay agenda is in our culture, in our narrative. Our kids are now being taught in school at the ages of five in some parts of the world that you can have two dads or two mums. What started as some gay community being beaten and then pushing against it has resulted in those things being in our curriculums. Foundations being attacked. Because, you see, if you want to take ground, you have to, first of all, attack those things. You can't just, you know, what we're standing on. Remember the, the statement that was made, what we're standing on is critical. Closer to home, our national obsession with money. No one can serve two masters, Matthew 6, 24. For he will either hate one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. The purpose of money has been completely distorted in our society. So the way that we put, because sometimes you wonder, somebody who has billions and billions and they're still amassing it, it's not normal, it's not rational, it's not consequence of rational thought. But it's because the foundations have been attacked and there has been a worldview and a value system that is built on the belief that money answers all things. Whereas in truth... The Bible says, for the love of money, that is the greedy desire for it, and the willingness to gain it unethically, is a root of all sorts of evil. So, as I bring 
this to a close. With all that we've outlined today, with the acceptance of the fact that we are salt and we are light, with the acceptance of the reality of the environment that we are in, with the acceptance of the word that says that of his government, there shall be no end. It will be increasing. His word that tells us that the world is peripheral to the church. That that which he seeks to do and express, the kingdom being seen, requires us to express it. We can't simply lobby people to change their behavior. We have to go deeper. The foundations are being attacked left, right, and center. We ourselves have to embrace the foundational truths of God's word, and we must organize our lives around it as a community. People must be able to look to us and see kingdom. Then you can begin to teach it. We can't just flick pages and explain. It must be animated. The word must be made flesh. We must look like it. We must express it. We must demonstrate it. And this is our mandate. I want us to look at... Um, Ezekiel 33, 1 to 11, and verse 19. You can look at it in your own time. But the essence of that, those verses, are that basically if God gives you a job to do as a watchman and you don't do it, then the blood of those that perish as a result of you not doing it is on you. If you do it and they don't listen, you've done it. It's on them. But let us not be among those who jump up, sign up to everything, but yet we don't fulfill the mandate that he has sent us here to do. And that is to, to recalibrate, to win people over to his way. It's not just, okay, say this in us prayer, be coming to our church. It's a kingdom. It's holistic, it's well-rounded. There's vast and diverse expressions of life that are in the kingdom and that flow from the kingdom. And we are called to demonstrate it. So therefore, let us embrace our mandate with vigor, with gusto, and understand that our fulfillment will come from so doing. Amen.